tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. It's been nine months since Katie Adams began her transformation from male to female. Are you happy about going down this road? Deep down, um, I used to feel very hollow. Uh, I used to feel like there was always some part of me missing. I finally feel like I'm myself. A toxic metal inside of homes across the ocean state is harming children, and those most affected live in poor neighborhoods. Lead poisoning in Rhode Island is very much a racial injustice, a social injustice, an economic injustice, because the children who are poisoned in Providence, Pawtucket, Central Falls, Woonsocket, Newport, too often are from families of color and low income. Brad Krieger is a recording engineer and the owner of Big Nice Studio, located in the former textile factory known as the Lonsdale Company Mill Complex in Lincoln. It is situated along the Blackstone River, the one-time engine of the Industrial Revolution. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. Lead poisoning. It's something that all too many Americans across the country are dealing with in their homes and in their water on a daily basis. Here in Rhode Island, hundreds of children suffer lead poisoning every year. The problems surrounding the toxic metal were made worse during the pandemic as families were told to stay home. Tonight, we take a closer look at this public health crisis and one community that's fighting back. Yeah. There's a different level? No, different games. Different games? Yeah. 23-year-old Jessica Olguin Martinez enjoys spending time with her three younger siblings, but their home in Central Falls hasn't always been a safe place to live, especially for her 14-year-old brother, Edwin Anaya. When Edwin was three, a blood test showed he had been exposed to high levels of lead. And over the years, his family says he struggled to focus. Like if you ask him to do something, he will walk to, let's say, he go pick up the dishes. He will walk to the dishes, but then instantly, like, forget what, what he's supposed to be doing. Like it takes him a while to remember yeah. things, even in the short term. Yes. Is that frustrating for him? It is, more in school. Edwin's mother, Guadalupe Martinez, says that an inspection traced the lead to chipped paint around windows, which were later replaced. Lead was also found outside in the soil. Es difícil porque uno no espera eso de sus hijos, o sea, nunca piensas que por, por la pintura o por las ventanas viejas tu hijo va a tener consecuencias para toda su vida. ¿Qué tipo de consecuencias? I asked her what type of consequences. Um, es hiperactivo, tiene déficit de atención, muchos problemas en la escuela, no, no problemáticos, sino para concentrarse, para aprender, le cuesta aprender. We know that lead disease has an impact on neurocognitive development. It can cause speech delays, it can cause behavioral changes, ADHD kind of stuff, um, cognitive changes in your brain, and some of them are permanent. Dr. Beata Nelkin runs a pediatric clinic across from Central Falls City Hall. She's treated dozens of children who've suffered lead poisoning, including Edwin. There's no lead amount that is safe. If you think about lead disease in the first place, why do we wait for a kid to get sick to, to 
change our housing. That's a very backwards approach to a health condition that we know exists. And while most children who are exposed to lead have no obvious immediate symptoms, prolonged exposure could cause long-term harm. Have you worked with patients who've suffered those chronic effects of lead poisoning? So I have kids who've had lead poisoning who then develop behavior problems, speech delay, constipation, problems in school. You can't necessarily draw a direct line that says A caused B, but it is one factor that it, you take into consideration. More than 95% of the housing units here in Central Falls were built before lead was banned in household paint back in 1978. And that old paint is the most common source of lead exposure to children in Rhode Island. When we think about the lead issue, a lot of the laws that we use to enforce, you know, what we do have been on the books for decades. And the fact that we're still, still dealing with it now means that something's not working. In 2020, 5% of children tested in Central Falls had high blood lead levels recorded for the first time. Tyler Romero is making sure that landlords in the city have what's called a certificate of lead conformance. It indicates that there aren't any lead hazards in the rental units. I'm looking at the outside of this, this frame here and there's chipped and peeling paint. So what I'll do is I'll take out my phone and, you know, take a photo. During his first year on the job, he's helped secure certificates for about 14% of the properties that need to be inspected for lead. And to be clear, the goal is not to remove the lead, right? The goal is, in most cases, to paint over that lead-based paint. Lead-safe, exactly right. Lead-free is a almost complete remodel of the property. It's bringing it down to the, the nubs of the home and building it back up, which some property owners do. And part of the reason is because getting lead-free would cost, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars? Yes. Down here. Off. Romero and the city's housing inspector, Annette Martinez, are putting landlords on notice that state law requires most of them to have lead certificates. See any chipping of the paint? See here, all this here. We followed along as Martinez went to check out a property where the tenant had reported housing violations. Martinez found there were also lead hazards. You gotta watch because kids tend to like, it's strange, to bite on the windowsills. The health effects of lead exposure are more harmful to children who are under six years old because their bodies are still developing. It's a fact that resonates with Guadalupe Martinez. Not only did her teenage son Edwin suffer lead poisoning as a child, but years later she found out her now seven-year-old son Dylan and five-year-old daughter Scarlett were also poisoned. All the while, the family thought the lead problem had been corrected. We didn't know exactly where, where it was from. We thought it was just from the windows, but it's everywhere. Toys, um, floor, windows, um, soil outside. Several years ago, when Guadalupe Martinez and her family were renting this home on Sumner Avenue, an inspection found there was lead paint around the entrance and on the exterior of the home. While the family has since fixed those areas, they now own the house and it's been deemed lead safe. We're gonna hear from the city 
and then you'll have a chance to respond, okay? Owners who ignored the city's request to come into compliance are issued a summons to appear at Central Falls Municipal Housing Court. And no kids are there, by the way, in that building. Right now there are no kids, all adults, right? Judge Robert McConnell listened as this property manager made his case. The city says it's been trying to work with him for almost a year. My concern, though, is you own 59 units. That's a lot of units, and that's a lot of potential children who could get poisoned. This issue isn't stopping at the local level. The attorney general's office has filed 17 lawsuits against landlords who violated the state's lead poisoning prevention laws. We identified situations where kids were lead poisoned. The Department of Health had taken action. The landlords had not responded to that uh, action by the Department of Health. In some instances, ignoring the Department of Health orders to clean up the properties for a decade or more. What is your message to landlords who are in violation of lead hazards? Yeah, we're going to keep coming. It's among my highest priorities. And if you're a landlord and you have lead paint in your apartment and you're renting to children in particular, if you don't clean it up and you don't seek the resources to do that that are available to you, we're going to continue to come for you. Laura Bryan knows the magnitude of the problem. She's the executive director of the Childhood Lead Action Project. It's incredibly important to know that the lead contamination that could be in your house is likely to be invisible to you. It's likely to be something that you can't see, you can't smell, you can't taste. Lead does not decay or decompose, so poisonous levels can remain not only in homes, but outside as well. Much of the soil in Rhode Island in urban areas is contaminated with lead. Yes, because of paint falling off of old homes, um, but also because of lead pollution from leaded gasoline, which we stopped pumping into our cars quite a long time ago. And many of the Rhode Islanders most affected by this toxic metal live in poor neighborhoods. Lead poisoning in Rhode Island is very much a racial injustice, a social injustice, an economic injustice, because the children who are poisoned in Providence, Pawtucket, Central Falls, Woonsocket, Newport, too often are from families of color and low income, and that's something that needs to be, needs a special strategy to, to protect families. Brian says the rate of lead poisoning in Rhode Island has been going down over the last 20 to 30 years, but went up during the pandemic. Those who are working on this issue stress it's entirely preventable. We're sick and tired of using kids as the canary in the coal mine, of waiting until a child-led poisoning occurs before we do something about it. Guadalupe Martinez says she wishes she had known sooner about the lasting effects of lead poisoning. She feels helpless watching her oldest son struggle. It's porque tiene consecuencias serias y que yo creo que se tienen que tomar en cuenta, porque a veces decimos, no, es solo el plomo y después con los años se le quita, y no. Sí se les quita, pero hay consecuencias. Up next, last year, as part of our story on mental health challenges for Rhode Islanders, we profiled someone going through gender transition. We first met this teenager at the inception of changing from male to female. Tonight, we have an update on her transformation several months on. We begin our story with a brief look back to when we first met Katie Adams. I brought a girl 
out on a date in freshman year and I had no type of sexual attraction to her at all. I found her very pretty. I wish I was her. I couldn't get myself to realize that thought and I wouldn't believe it until much, much more later on. Welcome to Gender Spectrum. We're be here for about an hour, talk about whatever we want to do. Back then, Katie Adams, as she now calls herself, was attending Gender Spectrum sessions at Youth Pride, a nonprofit serving the LGBTQ community, and she was living at home. Oh, tell me about this picture here. Oh, this is a picture of um, when we went to Comic-Con. And so you're a big um, Star Wars fan? Yeah, I really, uh, I really did enjoy, um, I still do, I still enjoy comic books and Star Wars. Typical kid. Yeah, typical kid. So you didn't know you were transgender? No, I did not know. Discovering it was very rocky. It was very, very rocky. Adam says she took the first step on that rocky road by doing the most masculine thing she could think of, enlisting in the Marines. However, it did not work because no matter how hard you try, it's not going to go away. I am just a trans woman. I've pushed this back my entire life. It's a feeling that repeatedly shows up. I feel that I should be a girl. Um, I feel that I should be looked at as one because I am one. When we first met, Adams, who is now 19, had just started hormone replacement therapy, HRT. Well, it's been nine months since you've been on the journey. That's when we last spoke to you. Can you tell us how these last nine months have been for you? Um, it's been, it's been pretty rough. It's like a second puberty. It's hard. It's really hard. Um, and sometimes a lot of people who are transitioning don't have that support and you need to find it. Adam's support from her family eroded, so she had to move out. She now lives at House of Kodak, a shelter in Providence for the LGBTQ community. What happens with people who normally try to transition is a family can see somebody who you used to be compared to who you wanted to be. And it can really separate the two. A uh, perfect example is this Christmas I went to go receive gifts and a lot of the gifts weren't the name that I wanted to have. And what is that name? What do you call that name? Um, that would be a dead name. That's, that's a name that is was given to you and doesn't match what, how you felt inside. What else have you noticed about changes within? Despite the emotional toll, Adams is encouraged by the physical changes she's beginning to see. It definitely does feel like something that I wish I could have done when I was younger. So it's, it's very um, euphoric. Your hair, has, you've grown out your hair since last we saw you. What are the physical changes? has the medication brought? I've had a lot of uh, fat distribution. That is for sure. It's been a lot in the chest as well with like the waist and a lot of, and sometimes like reconstructing like the face a little bit. I remember my doctor talking to me about the changes that I'll go through. Adams also says her skin is getting softer. She's had electrolysis to remove her facial hair and is beginning to dress more feminine. Katie, you know a lot of people would say you're awfully young to have made these decisions and to be so uh, committed. What do you say? So am I really young or 
am I just being who I've been keep on saying I am and I've just been keep on getting turned down? Reliable data is hard to come by, but anecdotally, many mental health providers report more teenagers are coming out as transgender than ever before. Some say they are inspired by those now in the spotlight, celebrities such as Caitlyn Jenner and Laverne Cox. In our initial report, we asked Dr. Jason Rafferty about the numbers. He's a local pediatrician and child psychologist. We see evolving sort of identities, uh, people who are non-binary, people who are gender fluid, people who are, you know, all these different sort of labels that are starting to emerge to describe diverse experiences. Dr. Rafferty also noted the societal shift to be more inclusive has some staunch critics. At least 20 states have introduced anti-transgender legislation aimed at everything from restrooms to sports. I think we've seen this before, whether it's you know with issues of race or sexual orientation, that as we try to become a more accepting culture, there's always some resistance. Rhode Island has been fairly accepting. It has a comprehensive anti-discrimination law concerning sexual orientation. And in 2001, gender identity was added to protections in housing, credit, and employment. Adams is currently job hunting after she says harassment while working at a local cinema complex became overwhelming. A lot of it came from customers because um, there's no there's no type of like, uh, like barriers customers have to how they speak to you. What would they say? They would say a lot of uh, hurtful um, types of words, uh, specifically words towards um, trans community in general or the LGBTQ community. Uh, a lot of just asking me to go back to where I came from. How do you find the resolve within yourself to go forward. I, I guess I have to admit there's some part of me that wants to prove people wrong. Uh, I really do want to prove to my family that um, of who I am and despite um, them telling me of uh, who I always am going to be. Are you happy about going down this road? Deep down, um, I used to feel very hollow. I finally feel like that I'm, I'm myself. And despite I'd feel like that sometimes I'd be an alien, at least I know who I am. Adams is currently taking courses at CCRI, Community College of Rhode Island, and says she'd someday like a profession protecting wildlife. Do you feel an affinity for animals, for creatures? Yeah, yeah, actually. they. Um, and the best part about animals is that they're, they don't judge, they're not biased. And as they say, a dog is a man's best friend. And could be a woman's best friend too. Yeah, it could be a woman's best friend too. Finally tonight, a look at something old that's new again. Here in Rhode Island and all over southern New England, many artists have begun to look back to the Industrial Revolution and reimagine some of the buildings as a place where art, music, and even comedy can soar, bringing new life to communities. But as contributing reporter Bill Bartholomew recently found, taking these spaces to artistic heights requires both ingenuity and tenacity. The legacy of a place like this uh, and the way that these mill buildings are such a staple in our community, the way that they were 
back then where these big companies would come in and kind of like drop these towns uh, on the map here because the river came through. Throughout southern New England, dozens of mill buildings remain from the region's once internationally celebrated textile and manufacturing economy. Often the centerpieces of former mill villages, some of this infrastructure can be traced to Samuel Slater's Industrial Revolution. Today, a new era of revolutionary industry occupies many of these spaces. Creative businesses and artists, some of whom find that the buildings provide the physical location and budget that they require to execute their vision. Where I'm sitting right here, there were these massive, uh, you know, production machines that were, uh, you know, looms and making textiles and all, all this. And now we have tape machines and drum sets and, you know, guitars and everything. Brad Krieger is a recording engineer and the owner of Big Nice Studio located in the former textile factory known as the Lonsdale Company Mill Complex in Lincoln, it is situated along the Blackstone River, the one-time engine of the Industrial Revolution. I think it's beautiful that um, people are, again, coming from all over the country uh, to a space like this where, you know, they once were for a different reason back then. It, it feels like, um, you know, I can help be like a steward of this, like, legacy of, uh, you know, just bringing the arts through a space like this. Krieger grew up in Rhode Island. Playing in bands and recording artists in his parents' basement, he launched his first studio in Norwood, Massachusetts. But by 2016, he knew he was going to need a larger space. Luckily, my mom was my biggest booster, and she was driving around, and she saw a for-rent sign on this big, beautiful mill space. And I was always looking for a space that had these kind of large ceilings, big space, exposed brick. So I drove down from Boston that day uh, and I met the owner of the building and we drew up a lease and I started moving in that day. Originally built in 1844, the building features large rooms and 32 foot high ceilings. I was like, the acoustics are incredible. I'm walking around, clapping my hands to hear, <laughs> you know, the reverberation. And it was just, it was perfect and I had to do it. About four miles south of Big Nice stands the Hope Artiste Village, a massive former fabric mill that was built in 1889 and was home to the Hope Webbing Company. It is where partners Luke and Taylor Bruneau found a home for Kismet, a studio, classroom, and performance center for improv. We knew, knew we needed to have a green room. Uh, we knew we needed to have enough space for 30 to 50 people. Um, we, but otherwise, we were really sort of inspired by the space. Um, this space used to be a paint store. So you can see actually there's paint all on the floor and everything, and that's all old from the last uh, tenant. So coming in here, it was not built out to look like a theater at all. All we were able to sort of say was, okay, maybe this will be over here, maybe this will be over here. The Brunos established themselves in the improv world in Boston and eventually decided to find a location to develop their own business in Rhode Island. Initially, we started looking at spaces that were more like commercial oriented, like downtown, down city Providence. Um, and what we realized was not just that this was a more financially reasonable or most sustainable model for us, but the culture too is very flexible and welcoming. Which one of your cousins is this again? Given that improv is often not considered a creative business, being welcomed by the community determined a successful outcome. It's the desert! It's the desert! 
Okay. It's been great to find a place that was really supportive of an extremely small artistic business that does not have the highest revenue potential in the world. And all this time, me getting paid minimum wage. <laughs> Kismet presents live improv shows every Friday night, along with classes during the week. Through this, they have quickly become a staple of the Rhode Island arts community. I think uh, affordable, flex artist spaces are critical. We can actually grow a community and a business and an art form all at once, which I think is not, not something we take for granted. Back up the Blackstone, Brad Krieger has built Big Nice Studio into a nationally respected institution, recording bands like Horse Jumper of Love and Friendship, as well as sound design for film and TV projects like the Academy Award-winning picture Coda. Hocus Pocus 2, and Bob's Burgers. In 2021, he bought the building. We have artists that come from all over the place. A lot of folks coming in from New York and Philadelphia, people it blows my mind, but people will fly in here to work here um, because of the, the space. Uh, but we also focus a lot on kind of the local community, the local, you know, artists. There's so many people making incredible music in Rhode Island. Uh, and so we try to be a space that they can come and kind of make their art. It is not lost on Krieger that the world he has created at Big Nice is part of a continuum of ideas that have shaped the region. And I think it's incredible that there's a through line, uh, again, today to people that are kind of rediscovering spaces like this for a different purpose. He encourages fellow artists to find untapped and perhaps imperfect remaining locations and use their imagination to create space. And there are many people who are opening spaces that have this uh, same imperfect vibe. We have, a, we have something here that has all the, the trappings of a professional high-end facility, but it's in a space that not everything is perfectly square, <laughs> where there's, uh, there's weird holes uh, in some of these bricks, and I don't have the money to fill them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. People want to come here because they feel like they can let loose, they can be creative, uh, they can work on their art, and they don't have to feel like uh, there's this, you know, buttoned-up vibe that's going to tamp down on their expression. Yeah. Um, if you're out there looking for a space, go for the imperfections. Find something that other people are afraid to take the chance on. And try to find people who are going to help you uh, realize that vision. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast on your favorite audio streaming platform. Thank you and good night.